If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I want to live outside, live outside of all of this. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is a representation of our 2017 Study Smarter series episode with Dustin Williams from Online MedEd covering endocrine questions. As you've listened to the Study Smarter series this year, I just want to thank you all for your support. I hope that it has been helpful during your Step 1 dedicated prep. If so, please tell your friends, especially the incoming first years or those starting second year, to stay tuned to what we're doing both on this channel, the Study Smarter channel, and the main Inside the Boards podcast channel. Come late August, we will be doing a step two study smarter series. And I do want to just kind of update you with respect to the inside the boards all audio cue bank. As you know, probably the first year edition is powered by Lecturio and Osmosis. The third year or clinical version is powered by online MedEd. We are rapidly increasing the amount of content that we're putting up finally. And because of that, I am going to offer a 12, 18, or 24-month subscription to the All Audio QBank. For our early supporters, you can get a 33% discount on this beta version. So what that essentially amounts to is 12 months of access for 50 bucks, 18 for 60 or 24 months for $70, which is a pretty decent deal, I would say. Just click the link in the show notes to this episode, or go to our website, insidetheboards.com slash QBank, and at the top left of the page, there is an ITB All Audio QBank button. If you click the drop-down and hit the 12, 18, or 24-month option, click Sign Me Up, open the show order summary tab and inputting the discount code study smarter you will get 33 percent off the long-term subscriptions to our all audio qbank and once we get an app out you will get free access to that as well and that should be no later than the first of january with our hope being that we're able to get out a beta version of an app to make the content delivery much more smooth within the next three months. I know that whole checkout process is a little clunky, so it's probably best just to click the link in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for listening and for supporting us. I sincerely hope that the start of this academic year is your best year of medical school. 
Enjoy. So, Dustin, thanks for coming back. Yeah, my pleasure. I like I like this podcast. Oh, We're thanks. probably going to do a few more after this. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be so honored. How's the cat doing? The real cat is doing great. Um, she's a little lonely with all my travels, but the uh, the online med ed cat's doing fantastic. We actually <laughs> just hired a marketing firm, and the, the dude who runs it loves cats. So I'm finally winning the war between Jamie and I. There's definitely going to be more cat. All right, let's get into this. What do you do? What did you do when you were preparing for step one? How did you approach questions? Do you have a systematic approach or do you just kind of take it as it goes? Um, to be honest, uh, I actually studied using the Kaplan videos and um, I could not bear to stand Golian. So I couldn't use Golian and Pathoma didn't exist. So <laughs> step one, new world, Kaplan videos. And that actually did really well for me um, because I was able to practice. And at the time I did it wrong, right? I did it the way everyone else does, which is read the vignette, read the question, read the answers. I learned since then how questions are written and therefore how you should actually take them. And I've actually created a method for success. It's um, on online med ed, uh, the next level methods for success. It's a free video. There's no um, paying content. It's all free stuff to, to read about. And it's basically what I learned from um, Jeff Weiss. He made us write questions as a means of teaching residents how to take board style questions. And actually, it was really interesting to, to figure out the methodology. And, and I don't say this to brag. I say it to prove a point. And even my residents at the Internal Medicine Residency Program in Baton Rouge still won't do it my way. I think they think because it sounds stupid. But um, I took my ABIM board exam and finished in two and a half hours. And I'm board certified, so I passed. <laughs> it's a nine hour test, right? And you know, by the time some of my classmates that just graduated residency with me were taking their first break, I was leaving. And yeah, I, you know, I studied a lot and yeah, I worked hard in online med ed. So yeah, I know a lot of stuff, but it's not the knowledge that helps you. What I learned was how to write a question. And therefore I learned how to take a question. And I'd actually like to spend a couple of minutes just explaining it. Absolutely. That is the whole reason I call us inside the boards because the goal is to teach students to think like question writers because I myself was eh, a mediocre test taker, a standardized test taker. And then once I started writing and then editing like thousands of questions, there's a certain facility you get in answering questions, even apart from knowing the content. And despite the NBME and NBOME trying to avoid having questions that can be answered or answer choices that can be whittled down through test wiseness, there still is a lot of test wise principles that you can learn to improve, I think, your your score. Focusing, I guess, on the, the how more than yeah. just the what. So yeah, absolutely. Let's hear it. And actually, I, I think that the I hate the USMLE that it's used as a way of getting people into residency and like valuing a human or a doctor against each other. But I do think that the USMLE actually does a really good job. If you're going to standardize and automate a test taking process for physicians, they do a pretty good job, right? Because there are no accepts, no nots, no multiple choice, no, I mean, multiple right answers, no all of the aboves. So it, there is some test wiseness, right? Because all the questions have to be written under the same principles. It makes it so it's it, it's easy to get good at taking the test. And we actually have this in our shelf step and step prep guide, which is also free in online meta. It says that, uh, how do I want to say this? Uh, you have to train your mental faculties, just like a competitive athlete will train the rest of their body, right? If a boxer gets in the ring and all they've done is just skip rope, they don't have the strength, or the ability to box to keep up. But if they don't do the jump rope, then they're not going to have the endurance to stay in the ring. And part of test taking is doing the thing 
that you're going to take, like you have to train for the test. Yeah. In doing so, hopefully you learn all stuff along the way, but you have to train for the test and that, that's, that's part of the game. And unfortunately, if you want to do well or if you're doing poorly and just want to pass, you can actually get a bunch of points just by playing the game right, training for the test. So um, the way we, we write questions, and, and you can chime in with your own experience here, basically what happens is that you start with an educational objective, right? The thing you want to test. Yep. Side effect of beta blockers. And then um, you write the question, not the, vin- not, not the stem, not the vignette, but the question. Yeah, the actual interrogatory. Right. Like what, what's the side effect of beta blockers? But then, you know, that's a single order question and all the step questions are, are, are hinge questions. So you ask it differently. What medication is likely to cause the side effect? You have to identify the side effect first. And then it's basically asking the same question. What's the side effect of beta blockers? And then the person takes the right answer, beta blockers. And then they will put in other answers that sound right, that could be correct if you alter the vignette in a certain way that makes all the other answers correct. And they'll choose answers that sound like, or at least might potentially, if all you use is word association, just by doing flashcards instead of actually linking things together, you might recognize a word and associate it, but it's actually wrong. That's a really good distractor. Right? And so um, what I try to do actually is as I coach these questions, I say, if you can change the vignette to make the other answers right, you know, you, that's how you know you've mastered the content. So they've chosen an educational objective, they've chosen a right answer, they've chosen a, the, the hinge questions they're going to ask and all the wrong answers. And then you write the vignette. Right. <laughs> you can take a question that's testing what's the side effect of a beta blocker and compare it to another of o- other medications. And if you just know what's the side effect is the question, then you just go through and know the other side effects. So if it's hydrochlorothiazide, lisinopril, and amlodipine, well, thiazide diuretics cause hypo. Kalemia. Base inhibitors cause hyperkalemia. And calcium channel blockers cause peripheral edema. I, as the question writer, can just write a, a huge vignette. Like blah, 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 has bradycardia, blah, 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 blah. Right? The blah, blah, blah is there to throw you off. But the other, co- the other cool thing about step one and step two, which is that they don't throw curveballs on step one and step two. Right. So all that blah, 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 blah is actually legit, right? So if there's a hinge question and the blah, blah, blah in there is really relevant material. And I think one of the important things to keep in mind for students, because a lot of people will get a, an answer wrong, say on a practice question in their Q bank, and they'll think, ah, see, they tricked me. I think drilling down to the reason why someone thinks that is really a, a part of learning what good test taking skills, uh, comprise and, and knowing not just like the, you know, what is the side effect of the beta blocker? That's not going to be an actual interrogatory. It's, it's learning to discern what is actually being asked in the question, like, can you sum it up in a giant vignette that says, you know, which of the following is a side effect? I guess the other thing is with the boards, question writers are advised not to include irrelevant material that, that makes a question difficult because of, of irrelevant like difficulty. So even though a lot of those vignettes are ridiculously long, each thing in there is designed to help you learn to discern and cut through the crap, essentially, train your clinical judgment. So every time I would say you have that sense of, oh man, they were trying to trick me, those are the really important questions you should mark in your review and really drill down, find out why you got it wrong, because you probably can come on to some principle that that will help you apply to different questions. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly true. 
I don't give this lecture anymore because I'm too busy, but I would go around the country giving acing the wards, how to present a case and why board exams matter. And it was always targeted to schools right as they were approaching step one. And the whole point was that even though it feels like you're studying useless material, like the Krebs cycle that you're never going to talk about again, at the same time in that vignette, they're giving you practice patients. You don't even know it's happening. Right. And as you said, like they, they don't include erroneous information. They don't have four and a half pages to do an H&P. So when they say something's positive, it means something. And definitely they don't have, you know, eight and a half pages to do a negative review of systems. So when they say something's not there or it's negative, they're taking the time to tell you. That means that that is going to be really necessary to the hinge question. It, it might just be to a diagnosis that you then need to hinge to, or they might really be pushing you away from one of the distractors. And it's really useful. So if they take, you know, if they say the usual stuff, the age, the race, the gender, and the past medical history, kind of ignore that stuff, right? But then if there's talking about the physical exam or the vital signs, or even if it comes down to preclinical science stuff, if they mention something that's positive, or more so when they say it's negative, you're really going to hone in on that. Right? And that's actually the strategy I use, right? So I've read the question, I've read the answer choices, I'm already scanning the, the vignette, I don't care about the blah, 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 I'm looking for the things that I need yeah. from those answer choices. And just to, just to illustrate this again, same question about beta blockers. If you've got three other medications there, well, I'm looking for other side effects. If you've got drug classes, class one through four antiarrhythmics, well, then it refocuses what you're going to be talking about. And to illustrate this concretely, I know everyone's had this experience unless you've been doing the strategy from the beginning. You go through a vignette and you're like, yeah, I got this. You're like highlighting left and right. Like you, you, you got the answer, right? You got the diagnosis, get to the bottom. And it's like, oh, that's not wait, what they're what? asking. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, what's, wait, wait, what? Right. So if you've had that experience, that's exactly what you've, you've done it wrong. You try to guess what the question is going to be by going through the vignette. And so you, your brain focuses on all these things that you think are awesome. And you get to the end and you don't need it. So I guess the first principle then is really to, to start with what the question writer themselves begins with, and that is the educational objective, right? Not to go the other way around. Exactly. If you can start thinking like the person who wrote the question by reading the question first, try to figure out what universe you're in, cardiology, nephrology, dermatology, psych, whatever, and then if you can deduce the educational objective by the answer choices, the question's going to take two seconds. You're already done. All right. What else on uh, your approach to questions? So start with the interrogatory, look at the answer choices, then go back to the vignette. Yeah. And then highlight only the things that relate to your answer choices, right? The, the positive and negatives, uh, the, the negatives, regardless of what you think. The other thing is people get trapped, right? They, they see one element of a disorder or of, of an illness script that they think is really relevant. And then they have all this other competing information. It's actually almost true for people do in real patients, right? That, that's a heuristic where people lock in an answer and then block out everything else. Yeah, Jerome Groupman talks about that and how doctors think. Now I forget what the uh, that particular heuristic is called, but Anchoring. Anchoring, Anchoring yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. And so you make a decision early on and you stick with it. And then just, and I've actually had people email me or write um, in the discuss boards about a question and they, they lament that they thought I, I tricked them, just as you said. And it was, <laughs> no, I mean, you, you had all of this other competing information and then this one piece, which does fit into the illness script for this, this, this disease that we're talking about, it also fits into the one that you thought it was, but the other four elements are all there that point you away from it. Because it's a single best answer, right? right? Yeah, that, that's indeed, yes. Which I, which I actually, that's why I say, I think the USMLE, if it's going to be automated, it's actually doing it very well. There's only one right answer. And regardless, if you think you would do all the things or it might be two or three, there is only one right answer. And you actually have to read, that's why you read the question first. 
It may not be what's the next step. It may be what's the best diagnostic test. It yeah. may be what's the most common cause of death. Not what kills people, but what's the most common cause. Not give the beta blocker its arrhythmia in 24 hours, right? So you have to make sure you answer the question that they're asking. And if you read the question first, it's never even an issue, right? Like you know what the question is. So like you, you don't even get distracted by a superfluous information in the vignette. Should we go through some and apply your methodology here? All right. Put me to the test. Give me step one content. Yep. Let's see if the master educator test taker can match mental wit with step one. <laughs> and I will say that even though this podcast does take a ridiculous amount of time to edit sometimes, Dustin has not looked at any of the questions that I'm going to give him. He is doing this like a third-year medical student on July 1st, standing up before a grand rounds audience of attendings getting pimped on like surgery principles, <laughs> except right. today we're doing endocrine. I'm ready to go. I'm excited. All right. So first, a 16-year-old girl comes to the emergency department because of a panic attack. She began feeling tingling around her mouth and then became nervous, causing her to hyperventilate. The tingling has persisted, and she also reports having had muscle cramps and spasms for the past week. A metabolic panel reveals normal electrolytes except for a low serum calcium. A review of the patient's chart reveals thyroid surgery one month earlier due to a suspicious nodule. Which of the following findings is most likely to also be present in this patient? All right, don't read them, don't read them, don't read them, don't read them. Don't read them. All right. What's most likely to be found in the, the, the following, what else is most likely to be found? We had thyroid surgery, low calcium, and she's got tingling of the perioral area and muscle cramps, right? She's got hypocalcemia. I thought first it was going to be a panic attack, and I was looking for stuff about albumin and low CO2, but then she's got perioral tingling. They tell you low calcium and thyroid surgery, she's had a parathyroidectomy. So I'm looking for uh, low PTH, so maybe we're going to get into basic science stuff, and then or physical exam findings like Chavostek sign and Trousseau sign. So let's read read the answer choices. To you are so nervous because like you know all this clinical stuff for hypocalcemia <laughs> because you're a doctor, but this is step one content. You never know what's going to Yeah, get really. Funny. I never know. All, all right, right. Read me so, the answer choices. Let's see. Here they are. A, low parathyroid hormone. <laughs> B, low thyroid stimulating hormone. C, high calcitonin. D, high parathyroid hormone or E, high thyroxin? That would be a really easy question if we did the method. If you read the question first, I would see those options and see, okay, there's thyroid and calcium stuff. And then I just go to the vignette. And as soon as I see thyroid surgery, that's like the buzzword, right? If you accidentally take out the parathyroids and you remove the thyroid, it's anatomy. You're going to tank the production of PTH and low PTH leads to low calcium. Um, the decreased TSH, decreased TSH, it's always backwards, right? Decreased TSH would actually mean hyperthyroidism, right? That would be um, what they're expecting. There's a low T4, which would cause an increased TSH because of the thyroid surgery. So let's look at that. So B, low thyroid stimulating hormone. You might think, okay, so the patient had thyroid surgery, so they're probably trying to tell me her thyroid's out right? So two errors here. One, not, I guess, thinking through where does thyroid stimulating hormone right. come from, because it actually comes from the anterior pituitary, right? So that would be wrong in and of itself. But I could see how somebody could easily make that mistake if they were just kind of scanning a question and didn't really think through what was, you know, being uh, mentioned. And you see thyroid surgery, think no thyroid, but if you don't read the whole of the answer choice, thyroid stimulating hormone, there is a potential you could get it wrong. 
Although actually, there's a real. I mean, there's there's one option that's elevated T4 and another one that's low TSH. Mm-hmm. Oh, and those are immediately out, right? They mean the same thing, right? Like they're Correct. if they're not associated together, like those two can just be eliminated right away by test taking strategy. Uh, and actually, a decreased PTH and an increased PTH is the other option. Those I mean, you've narrowed it down to the, the two there. And calcitonin is a medication that you give. I mean, I don't even know how that works into basic science. Like uh, literally, we get right down to low uh, low PTH and high PTH and just got to know the anatomy of the parathyroid. So uh, essentially after thyroid surgery, uh, calcitonin would likely be decreased um, or, or unchanged since it's produced by the parafollicular cells uh, of the thyroid gland. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, yep, definitely. That's, I, I believe you. <laughs> I, uh, I'm and not going to lie. I have, cancer, sure. I have some notes on this, so that is <laughs> not coming from my memory, but uh but I guess I could see, so whenever I looked at like questions when I was writing them or reviewing those from um, like feedback from users in the QBanks I worked on, we'd often see like, okay, uh, 60% or 70% of students keyed answer A, low parathyroid hormone in, um, as the correct one, okay? If it were 100%, then we'd scrap that question because that question is too easy. If it were... Five percent. That question might be too hard. Uh, it needs or you, edited, you, or you wrote. Yeah, you wrote it yeah, wrong. Uh, because yeah, because it's confusing or whatever. Yeah. Um, but after, usually, not always, but usually, you can see that the there is a not necessarily like an even spread amongst choices for the other distractors. There's usually like the correct answer is most often keyed as correct by uh, users taking or approaching a question. But then there's another distractor that gets like second place as far as as mm-hmm. um, choosing goes. And I, I tend to call that the most attractive distractor. And it's less clear in, in this particular question, but I would say if you were scanning this quickly, perhaps, and, and maybe you hadn't, you were sick during your endocrine block, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. during second year, and you read this question, you might think, okay, panic attack, right? They always say in behavioral science mm-hmm. or psychiatry, right. you know, make sure you check the thyroid, um, cause hyperthyroidism can be a organic cause of panic type symptoms, including tachycardia. So I could see somebody thinking, oh, okay, so this is probably something related to thyroid. The thyroid was operated on, but all of that would be untrue. So I guess that thyroid surgery is not really a red herring. It's essential, but not because the surgery is on the thyroid, but like you said, because the anatomy of the parathyroid glands they didn't give the calcium, it'd be a much harder question. And I think that if the TSH was elevated was one of the options along with increased thyroxine, that would, I think would be actually a better question because the TSH should go up after thyroid surgery, but you don't know how much it's going to go up, how soon, and, and maybe they poked the wrong thing so the thyroxine could be up. The fact that they gave you low calcium in thyroid surgery just makes like the PTH, it's like the PTH, right? Like that's like um, the, the vignette was all that blah, blah, blah I talked about, right? Like the peripheral right. tingling was great, but like blah, 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 low calcium thyroid surgery. I was done. My parathyroidectomy. Uh, and this is what I mean when I said I could take my ABIM exam in two and a half hours because I, I, I would do this, right? Like I would just hone in on the – now, I probably got some wrong because – No one's perfect. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean like I, I mean I didn't – it wasn't like, oh, I don't know. I just – you know, I picked what I thought the answer was. I probably was distracted a couple times, but overall it didn't matter because I passed. Let's move on. Next one. A 27-year-old woman, Gravita 1, Para 1 comes to the OB clinic because of agalacteria, 
fatigue, cold intolerance, hair loss, and unintentional weight gain for the past year. She had placenta accreta during her first pregnancy with an estimated blood loss during the delivery of 2,000 cc's. Which of the following is the most likely cause of her symptoms? I mean, I know the answer already, too. Right? She's got uh, placenta accreta, blood loss, pregnancy. It's going to be Sheehan syndrome dysfunctional uh, pituitary gland. So I'm going to look for low levels of the anterior pituitary and high levels of the secondary organ or low level, sorry, low, 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 low and low. Right? So low TSH, low T4, low ACTH, low cortisol. Let's see what happens. All right. So which of the following is the most likely cause of her symptoms? The answer choices are A, Addison disease, <laughs> B, Cushing syndrome, C, Hashimoto thyroiditis, D, pituitary adenoma, or E, Sheehan syndrome. You are correct. <laughs> All right, good, good. Um, but this is actually really hard, um, you know, because Addison's, first, I'm, I'm surprised they use eponyms. I thought we're getting away from that. Um, Addison's disease is a primary uh, adrenal deficiency where you're going to have um, n- not enough cortisol be produced because of a lack of all the the uh, adrenal. So no mineralocorticoids, glucocorticoids or androgens. Right. So Addison's like, cramps out. And that's actually could be with the huge hemorrhage. 2000 cc's is a lot. So I, just, I guess you could think you might uh, have killed off the adrenal glands. But I'd be going after um low blood pressure from the low cortisol and maybe some potassium abnormalities. They probably have to give you potassium abnormalities if they really wanted you to go after Addison's, even though that's not actually the common presentation. Cushing's is too much cortisol. That's weird. I mean, I I think that if you thought that Sheehan's was associated with the pituitary adenoma, maybe you might think Cushing's syndrome or Cushing's disease, hypertension, diabetes, hypertension. Hashimoto's, I think, was close because fatigue, cold intolerance, weight gain, but Hashimoto's is an autoimmune destruction of the thyroid, which wouldn't have anything to do with uh, the pregnancy. And as soon as you said G1P1, I was like, she answered yeah. in my head. <laughs> exactly. If they, if they give you G1P1 and, and it's like a uh, after delivery, it's, it's, it's going to be one of the complications there. Yep. Um, and then pituitary adenoma. If you just got to that one and didn't read all the answer choices, that's technically not wrong. Sheehan syndrome is, um, you know, a huge hemorrhage after, after delivery, and that causes a essentially the necrosis of the pituitary but yeah i think that you bring up another good point too so yes they are trying to go get away from uh, eponyms but all right one thing when you you study that you have to keep in mind is know what uh, entities are called like all their names so e Sheehan syndrome also sometimes referred to as pituitary apoplexy. You could even just descriptively hemorrhagic necrosis of the of the pituitary gland. Like know what the entity is, especially if there is some notable eponym that it's going to be hard to get away from, like Cushing syndrome. Like everybody knows Cushing syndrome is, you know, excess cortisol and you're looking at a person with hypertension, central obesity, buffalo hump, poor wound healing, moon faces. That was always my favorite. Which means acne, by the way. I don't think anyone ever explained that meant they're fat and have acne and wow. stretch marks. And I was like, you purple stripey moon faces. What does that mean? <laughs> It's fat and have acne. Isn't that like so many things in medical education, though? Like I, uh, we interviewed uh, Emily Tan, who is an ortho resident and heads up white coat coaching. And she was walking me through <laughs> fracture uh, names like green stick fracture or a, a nightstick fracture. And I didn't realize that these terms actually kind of made sense. <laughs> it, was, it was very <laughs> educational. And I was like, wow, it took me uh, four years of medical education and completely lost on me. 
Um, all right. So, so I, do, I do joke and say that that um, the video where there, you know, this anesthesia versus ortho. Yeah, yeah. There's a fracture. I need to fix it. Yeah. That's that's actually what the medicine person says. There's a fracture. It needs to be fixed. Right. So the ortho person. It's got 27 different variables that I've never even considered. They don't get enough credit. It's true. Actually, they, I, I really believe that. They may not know how to do DVT prophylaxis, but they sure do know how to fix a hip. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So Addison disease, I would say one little fact to remember, though, about Addison's disease for step one is that, yes, it is usually an autoimmune condition, but uniquely it can also be caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis. That's, a, I think, a concept that shows up a lot in the step one review literature, <laughs> if you will. Most common U.S. is autoimmune. Most common worldwide is disseminated TB. Don't forget about Neisseria meningitis. Waterhouse Friedrichsen. Yeah, look at that. Look, you, I, pull, you pull that one out of your head? Or you I did, actually. Book? Yeah, nice. no, that, that well one tons of useless information that sticks with you <laughs> from med school. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. 24-year-old man comes to the clinic for his annual checkup. His past medical history is non-contributory. Blood pressure is found to be 152 over 78. The measurement is repeated and shows a similar result. Physical examination shows no other abnormalities. Lab tests show hypokalemia and low plasma renin activity. Which of the following conditions is the most likely cause of these symptoms? Well, it's hyperaldo, so let's find out which one. <sighs> See, you know, like... Hypertension, having... hypokalemia. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So if if you weren't a board-certified internal medicine physician, though, you'd have to read each of these. And you might you might struggle. Yeah, let's that, read, read them out anyway and go through them because I think it's going to help explore the, the system that I use to make that answer so concrete and obvious to me. All right. So A, aortic coarctation. B, carcinoid syndrome. C, Primary hyperaldosteronism, D, unilateral renal artery stenosis, or E, extracellular fluid contraction, or volume contraction, we could say. I actually have a, a video in the intern content, which explains this pretty easy, pretty well. Um, I used a Katrina switch, right? So you just draw a picture of a glomerulus. Yeah. At the JG apparatus, I've got a switch, only it's a Katrina switch. My house after Hurricane Katrina, when I bought it, the couple of light switches were just down was on and up was off. And <laughs> rather than remembering all, yeah, not, not like those, those, the ones have to be congruent to be off. And if they're, they're different, then they're on. Like just one light switch, down yeah. was on, up was off. I mean, typical uh, Katrina flip. And I use that system to, to measure the flow through the nephron. And if the flow is high, it pushes it to off. And it, if it, there's not a lot of flow through the system, it falls to on. And the JG apparatus makes renin. Uh, renin uh, makes ang2 ang2 tells a little fat hat on top of the kidney to make aldosterone aldosterone's job is to reabsorb sodium and kick out potassium and then that's so the aquaporin channels can be inserted under adh's influence to reabsorb water water follows salt 
so as I, I heard this question, I said, okay, well, um, it, it's a, I, I actually wasn't sure what it was at first, but it was obviously hypertension. And as soon as you said hypo-K, I mean, that's a buzzword, hypertension and hypokalemia is hyperaldosteronism. But then the question actually got really good because it gives you a couple of reasons why there might actually be a bunch of reasons why there is hyperkalemia. So the idea with this system is if the flow to the kidney is low, for whatever reason, then the switch will fall to on, which means renin will go up, ang 2 will go up, aldosterone will go up, and sodium's ribs or potassium's lost in the urine. So hypertension and hypokalemia only tells me that it's an aldosterone-mediated process. Yeah. Aortic coarctation is going to prevent blood flow to get, to get to the renal arteries. Most coarctations that people survive are, are past the great arteries, but are usually above the renal arteries. So our aortic coarctation could be a secondary hyperaldosteronism. So that would actually, like the blood flow to the kidneys will be reduced, and so re- renin will go up, and still go up, aldo will go up. The same thing is true of renal artery stenosis, right? You have a decreased flow to one of the kidneys. The flow is down, so the switch is on, renin up, NH2 up, aldo up. So you have another secondary hyperaldosteronism. And even extracellular fluid contraction, I think what that's saying is it's a volume contraction being volume down. That too would put the flow through the system to be low, so the system would be on, renin up, NH2 up, aldo up. That's another cause of secondary hyperaldosteronism. So you're looking, those three answer choices all have in common that they would... Hyperaldo. Yeah, they would mm-hmm. increase or upregulate or whatever the renin-angiotensin system. Right, but if you didn't know that system really well, you, you, and all you learned was hypertension and hypokalemia as I did, all of them are right. Like All of them are hyperaldosterone states. The thing that separates this question to primary hyperaldosteronism is the renin, right? The low renin means that it must be a primary hyperaldosteronism because aldosterone is increasing the return of fluid and an NH2 is increasing, well, it's blood pressure and fluid things. So the flow to the kidney is increased. So the flow switch is turned to off. So renin should be off and aldo should be low, but it is inappropriately elevated. And even in a test-taking strategy, if I saw three options were secondary hyperaldosteronism, I know they're all wrong. Correct. Right? Right? They all mean the same thing, unless they gave me like a brewy in the abdomen or uh, for the for some specific mm-hmm. differentiator, like or, an yeah, essential piece yeah. uh, within the vignette to rule something in. And you have to look at those things. Those are like the, not buzzwords, but patterns or like highlights of a, a disease that you just have to kind of know intimately to, to, and be on the lookout for within reading the vignette. But all right, what about carcinoid? Like, uh, what are some good things to know about carcinoid for? Step one. For step one, I mean, 5-HIAA in the urine. Um, Carcinoid comes from the lung and the liver. I'm sorry, lung and the gut. It only causes problems when it metastasizes to the liver. Since the lungs and the liver break down carcinoid, when you have an intestinal carcinoid, it's going to release uh, whatever it does into the bloodstream. It's going to cause right-sided cardiac fibrosis broken down by the lungs, so you don't get anything problem with the left side. And if you have a lung carcinoid, you're going to release the stuff into the bloodstream back to the pulmonary vein into the left side. So a pulmonary carcinoid will have left-sided cardiac fibrosis. And then the carcinoid stuff um, is flushing, flushing diarrhea and cardiac fibrosis. I'm yeah. not sure how it influences the renin system at all, actually. I guess maybe stimulated to increase vascular tone. I, 
Yeah, yeah, because you're let's see, you're flushing. You'd have like t- hypotension, tachycardia, your volume depleted, diarrhea. Yeah, that might be a really a stretch to get you to secondary aldosteronism. That would be a really good question, actually. No, no, that, yeah, so yeah. All of those are, are there some way of secondary hyperaldosteronism, and they gave you a low renin, so you could flip the renin to be elevated, and then you'd have to use the physical exam yeah. to find out which one is the right answer. Correctation with the you know, low blood pressure on the feet, cold feet, yeah, and renal aristenosis with a brewy extracellular fluid contraction, some reason to be volume down and flushing cardiac fibrosis and, and wheezing for to be carcinoid. And that would be, a, like, that's a, this is a great question because you can mold it so easily. All of these answers can be made correct if you change. One or two yeah. little things. You know, there's, there are people all around thinking of like, like really like, oh man, this, this would make a great question. So on this podcast, hopefully um, you are hearing two years before the types of questions that will be on board exams that hopefully the uh, NBME writers will just steal from us. This is exactly why I tell people that they need to read the answer explanations and really engage the answer choices beyond what whatever QBank they've gotten has told them. Like that exercise we just went through not only helps you figure out the test taking strategy, but also solidifies the illness script. Like yeah. If you didn't know correctation was supposed to have rib notching and lower extremity hypotension, well, now you learn it. And so like that's actually, this is one of the reasons why I say board exams matter. I think that USMLE is an awful way to place people into residency, but studying for the USMLE, even the step one, forces you to learn stuff you really don't want to learn, but you really should know. So that when you're done, yeah, you don't remember exactly what happens with thyroglobulin, MIT, DIT, T3, T4, but you know thyroglobulin's made in the thyroid and it also makes T4, right? So like by the time you recoil from the extreme amount of learning that you've done, your illness scripts are pretty well made and you can actually use that clinically or to grow your knowledge in whatever field you choose. Yeah, absolutely. And this starts part two of the original interview with Dr. Williams. A 47-year-old female presents to the clinic with a chief complaint of nausea, vomiting, and vertigo. In addition, she has had amenorrhea for the past six months. Ophthalmic examination shows bitemporal hemianopsia. Brain MRI confirms the presence of a pituitary tumor. Which of the following substances is likely to be elevated in this patient? All right, so read me all the answer choices. I cannot predict this one. I bet you will. Once you, you'll be like, ah, okay. A, okay. dopamine. B, estrogen. C, growth hormone. D, melatonin. Or E, prolactin. All right, so this is a... I mean, bitemporal hemianopsia is usually found in men because they get pretty big. And in women, they're usually microadenomas that only have amenorrhea and galactorrhea. But okay, let's buy into it. They're giving you the full clinical vignette, all of them together. Um, amenorrhea uh, and galactorrhea point me to a prolactinoma. So I'm going to start that one. Dopamine, see, but that's how that's like a, um, that has to do with Parkinson's or schizophrenia. It doesn't come from the pituitary. Um, same thing, estrogen does not come from the pituitary. That would be out. I guess supposedly you could have an FSHLH secreting tumor, but those are really rare. Yep. Growth hormone causes uh, acromegaly, and that could also be is a fairly common pituitary tumor. And melatonin's out. So what do we have? We've got a – this might be just a prevalence question, which is more common, prolactinoma or, or acromegaly. And I do believe it's prolactinoma, which also goes along with my amenorrhea Correct. So I'm going to say E, prolactin. You are right. And yeah. the she did have an MRI that uh, confirmed the presence of a pituitary tumor. 
So I guess at the medical student, like second year level, right? In my mind, pituitary tumor with bitemoral hemianopsia and amenorrhea plus or minus the galactorrhea is, is going to be a prolactinoma. Yeah. Just prevalence-wise, you could have a pituitary adenoma. Acromegaly is, is common enough where it was a competing factor, but they would have given you the growth hormone imp- symptoms. Yeah. Uh, you know, Hepatomegaly, you know, rings that don't fit and spacing of the teeth, and they didn't give any of that. So I was, I was debating whether this was a prevalence question or if they actually the symptoms they gave me were, were real, and I, I went with their real. Like This is the step one question. They're not going to include amenorrhea and want growth hormone and leave out the spacing of the teeth and the patomegaly, they're not just not going to do that to you. So how would they test prevalence? I would say you could have a 47-year-old woman come to the clinic with headache, that's it, MRI, mm-hmm. you know, show some vital signs, maybe say some other, you know, fluff. And then the brain MRI shows the presence of a pituitary tumor. Which of the following substances is likely to be elevated in this patient? And then each substance could be a potential adenoma because i mean really any any uh, pituitary hormone could be elevated based on the uh, cell that is transformed right so you could have an fsh producing adenoma you could have a growth hormone producing adenoma prolactin or uh, tsh uh, producing adenoma but the most common is going to be Prolactin. prolactin. Right. That's exactly it. If they did, if they gave you bitemporal hemianopsia, they would have justified the MRI. But if they left out the amenorrhea and just gave you the nausea, vomiting, vertigo with headache, that was all to lead you to get to MRI. And the MRI shows an anterior pituitary. And so what's most likely to be elevated is really asking what were most common anterior pituitary tumor, and that is one of prolactin. And you just have to know prevalence. That's a, that would be a mean question. I think <laughs> step one's not going to do that. That's I think they're going to give you yeah. symptoms. Yeah, that's, that's, that's too much. Do you think it's safe to assume that at the second year level, you can consider pituitary adenoma, which is a general term, as equivalent to a prolactinoma for most purposes? I actually have my endocrine lecture set up so that I include acromegaly. I think my, actually my own way of categorizing I think might have actually thrown me off because those are the two that I teach about. Those are the two that are clinically relevant. Yeah. And prolactin is by far more common. And I think I tricked myself uh, because of the <laughs> clinical medicine. You're right. Prolactinoma and pituitary adenoma, just by prevalence, really should be linked together unless they try really hard to give you competing physical exam information or laboratory stuff. Uh, that you should just jump right to that, right? Yeah, I would say yes. Pituitary adenoma equals prolactin. This is going to get you 95% of the cases. And if you if you need to get that question right, that is a trick. You know, you're going to get a 275 if you get it right. So it's <laughs> safe to say pituitary adenoma, prolactinoma. Yeah, equate them. Oh, the other thing is bitemporal uh, hemianopsia is something I think is a very high yield thing to know what that means. But Essentially, the tumor would push on the optic chiasm, and since uh, the fibers of each eye that are responsible for the lateral uh, visual fields, the temporal visual fields, cross at the optic chiasm, you cut both those out, and essentially you've got almost like tunnel vision. It's, it's useful to, to look and memorize and know and understand the anatomy of the visual pathways. And just as you did, though, the uh, anterior uh, pituitary adenoma is prolactinoma. If you've got bitemporal hemianopsia, you see those words, tunnel vision, loss of lateral fields, they can describe it in any way. 
if you see bitemporal hemianopsia, it's a pituitary tumor. Yeah. You could skip everything else and just jump to the MRI and then start looking for what is the tumor that's producing this. I mean, it's um, they try to get away from buzzwords, but as you develop illness scripts of diseases, I mean, you, there are buzz phrases. There are things you should look for. Like That's good clinical medicine, right? Exactly. If someone comes in with toe pain, it's probably not an MI. If they come in with crushing substrenal chest pain that radiates down their arm and they're a dude, I mean, that's it's an MI. It's okay to do that. Right. So I think that things like bitemporal hemianopsia, anterior pituitary adenoma, like all those things can be one-to-one linked with his buzzwords. This one's good. You're, you're going to enjoy this one. All right. A 35-year-old woman comes to the office because of headache, increased sweating, and intermittent stabbing pain in her right flank. She has no chronic medical conditions, does not take any medication, does not smoke or use other drugs or alcohol. Her family history is significant for thyroid cancer on her maternal side, Physical examination shows that the patient is pale and appears anxious. Her heart rate is 120 beats per minute, and her blood pressure is 210 over 120. Which of the following diagnoses is most consistent with this presentation? Do you want to think through this, or do you want me to? Oh, I know. This is my first patient in residency. I know. We'll do the exercise. Go ahead and read them off, and then uh, I'll explain. A, anxiety disorder. B, essential hypertension. C, hyperthyroidism. D, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1, or E, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2? That is brutal. That's right? a tough question. Right? I know. Yeah. So um, I actually, my first patient in residency ended up being an MEN2B. She was 35 years old. She came in with stabbing left flank pain and a headache. Blood pressure was 210 over 120. She was pale, diaphoretic, tachycardic. Um, <laughs> I, and I stumbled on the diagnosis, right? I got a CT scan of the head to rule out a head bleed. She didn't have that. And eventually I got down to, I thought it was going to be Theo. Um, and then pheochromocytoma led me to, to take a look at her family history. She had a thyroid cancer unknown. And, uh, and then I ended up diagnosing her with MEN2B. So um, this, is, I'm a, this is an unfair question because literally this is the patient, my first patient of residency as an intern. I was seeing her independently on the, the, the Apollo service, which means that both I and the resident were seeing people independently. And it took me about five days to make the diagnosis. And I got to, <laughs> at SHM, uh, Brad, uh, who runs the, the whole mystery diagnosis thing, was like, hey, man, can I use your case for mystery diagnosis? I was like, yeah, I guess, sure, whatever. And he's like, you'll, you know you'll never see one of these again, right? And uh, I've been searching ever since. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is totally unfair. I mean, it's MEN2B. Um, but uh, let's just go and Again, the I will repeat, this, this was totally not scripted. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Totally not. It's amazing. Um, so anxiety disorder is a great distractor, right? Young women, no history. Um, she, Easily she ruled could, out, though, because of the blood pressure. Right. It's, uh, I mean, even if the blood pressure is a little high, I mean, they're selling the blood pressure, right? That is obviously pathological. Over 200. Like, you know, if it's just a little hypertensive, it could still be anxiety. Um, but they wouldn't sell the, the severity of illness so hard, right? If it's a panic attack, they really want you to either rule out MI or to make the diagnosis of anxiety, it's got to be everything's cool. Yeah. Right? But she's obviously sick with a high blood pressure, high heart rate. She's pale and diaphoretic, right? Right. So that's not that. Essential hypertension is also ridiculous. Uh, it, it should be a stable blood pressure that you see multiple times and should not be over 180, over 100. They've done away with the blood pressure limits for emergency, but this would definitely be urgency ranges. And on the test, 150 over 80 is hypertension. Right? 
200 over 120 is ridiculous hypertension that you should pay attention to and something's wrong. Right. So you see really high numbers. And I, but I say that because I see people who are walking around in Louisiana with blood pressure is pretty close to this and that's just their normal. But on the test, you see someone this high, done deal. Hyperthyroid is a really good distractor because she has the yep. family history of thyroid cancer. She's got tachycardia, hypertension, and even diaphoresis. All of that sounds like thyroid storm or yep. hyperthyroidism at least. Uh, thyroid storm usually is hypotension because her heart rate goes too fast. The thyroid cancer, most cancers don't cause hyperthyroidism. They cause hypo because they take over the, the thyroid. And the stabbing left flank pain just doesn't fit. So I, would, I, was almost, I almost chose that. MUN1, MUN2B. All right. They're both multiple endocrine neoplasias. They both have stupid stuff. So the MUN1 is the hard peas, which I think is pituitary, pancreas, and parathyroid. That is correct. MEN2B is going to have... So, though, I would say, what do you do if you get MEN2A, MEN2B? Can you go through that? Or <sighs> that's, um, I know that's rough. Like, Well, actually, it's actually really good step one content, though, because it's so irrelevant in clinical medicine, but it is so obvious for a test question. So MEN1 is the hard piece, MEN2A is the soft piece, and there's two of them, and one of them is medullary thyroid cancer, and one of them is the other one. Now, I don't really have a good organizer for 2A, 2B, and that's actually something that's really going to be testable at step one level. If you got something, I'd love to hear it. I guess my approach to remembering these is to remember the one that's easiest to remember. And like you just said, and, and like Golian says, uh, remember one and then the other one's the other one. And it's actually MEN2A, medullary thyroid cancer, pheochromocytoma, parathyroid yes. adenoma. MEN2A is pheo and thyroid cancer. MEN2B is pheo and thyroid cancer. 2A, parathyroid, A, or para. And 2B is the other one, neural tumors. Oh, that's right. Neural tumors. That's right. Neuronal, yeah. So 2A is pheothyroid, 2B is pheothyroid, and the third one is different. MEN2A as parathyroid. That's how you remember that. That's that's good. That'll work. Anything else for these things? Let's see. Okay, so if you hadn't been an intern yet, and had, this is your first patient that will forever be burned into your mind, how would you rule in a men syndrome from what's given in the vignette? Over and above the hyperthyroidism. So, I mean, yes, the flank pain doesn't fit for hyperthyroidism alone, right? But why does she have stabbing pain in her right flank? Because I, I see that as a centerpiece of this uh, vignette. So actually, I, I think they've sold pheochromocytoma really well. I think they've done a poor job of selling an MEN syndrome, but they didn't give pheo as an option. If they gave isolated pheochromocytoma, I would have picked that. Yeah, because they other than the thyroid cancer, they didn't tell me she has risk factors for multiple endocrine neoplasia. We talked about the P's already, but the stabbing left flank pain that, that it usually actually doesn't present that way. But they're saying, hey, something is wrong with the adrenal kidney area. Left flank means kidney ureter. Maybe and so kidney stones. Right. Yeah. Right. So kidney stones. So actually, that's what I thought my patient had. Actually, when she first came in, I thought she just had a, a, a brutal response to pain, um, and she actually had microscopic hematuria. So we we actually got a CT, a non-contrasted CT of her abdomen, which did not detect the adenoma, which really was distracting on that patient. So at the question that was saying, "Hey, something is wrong with the kidney adrenal area." And then they give you four of the five P's of pheo. So it point, that's really quickly directing me to pheo. Then they gave you the history of thyroid cancer, which says, okay, that, that's two out of the three of the MENs. But still, 
if they didn't give me a thyroid abnormality or a thyroid nodule or something else, I really would have jumped to FEO and not MEN2B. But I think that's actually the equivalent answer because the only one of the five of MEN2B is FEO. So if you saw the FEO and didn't find it in your answer choices, I think it would be useful to then re-engage those answer choices and find out which one of them includes FEO, and that's MEN2B. Yeah, and, and just and 2A too, right? Right, yeah, sorry, so just well, of, of the five. General. Yeah, yeah, of the five, it's MEN2B, but and they could not have put MEN2A and 2B together. That's just ridiculous. That, you know, that's, just, uh, that's just someone being mean. <laughs> this, this question really the educational objective here was which of these syndromes is pheochromocytoma part of part of yeah exactly so that helps you rule out the men one there are going to be certain concepts that you do kind of have to memorize and part of that is going to be the distinction between men one syndrome and men two and the pheochromocytoma is a, a central part of the men two picture over and above men one and I liked that hard peas. I, I never thought of that for men one pancreatic, parathyroid, and pituitary. Yes, That's indeed. It. And you're ahead of me. I could have learned this from you. Onlinemedit.org slash endocrin slash MEN dash syndromes. But the hard P thing worked. 2A, 2B thing. I had to go to my site to look it up, right? So people who are listening, you know, I had to look it up to know that stuff. So it's not possible that you know everything about everything and retain everything about everything. It's just, it, it's ridiculous. ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Uh, one more. A 17-year-old comes to the clinic because she has not undergone puberty yet. She emigrated from another country two years prior and her mother underwent puberty at 12 years old. Her vitals are normal, including a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, which is 98.6 Fahrenheit, pulse is 82, respirations are 12 per minute. Her blood pressure is 162 over 94. Physical examination shows a female with Tanner stage 1 development of the breasts and no pubic hair. Pelvic examination shows ambiguous external genitalia and a blind vaginal pouch. Laboratory studies show a potassium of 3.1, and further studies show a decreased serum androstenedione. Abdominal ultrasound reveals bilateral masses within each inguinal canal and enlargement of the adrenal glands. <laughs> Which of the following <laughs> is most likely deficient in this patient? And, and feel free to rewind the elements of that vignette before we discuss that uh, for the listeners. There's a lot in there. This one is is difficult uh, to do, you know, over audio, I think, especially. But I would say that there are a lot of uh, vignettes that are this dense on um, board exam questions. So you've got... This is why you read the question first. I bet they're going to be which, 17, 21, 19 hydroxyprogesterone. <laughs> you are close. The answer choices. So, um, all right, we'll just keep our usual format and go through these. So the interrogatory, which of the following is most likely deficient in this patient? Uh -huh. A, 11 beta hydroxylase, B, 11 deoxycorticosterone, C, 17 alpha hydroxylase, D, 21 hydroxylase, or E, brain natriuretic peptide. All right. So yeah, this is actually a perfect reason why you read the question and the options first, right? If you see 17 hydroxy alpha, 11 beta, 11 de deoxy, 21 that's congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and they're testing you on um, like the cortisol pathway. Yeah. And actually, I think most of this um, was was bad. And so I actually have an approach to primary amenorrhea where I, I'm looking for a, um, external genitalia development and also- Which is a great, very high yield video. And I think it would be actually super relevant to 
go through these uh, concepts, um, even for the step one level, even though you you kind of intended it for third years, correct? Right, but but the endocrine stuff in that in that lesson actually is, is pretty relevant because it helps you get here. It doesn't get down to this level of detail, but when you started off primary amenorrhea, I was listening for whether she was going to have anatomy, that is the, the the axis development, pubic hair and breast development, and what her anatomy was going to be, whether she has a uterus and vagina fallopian tubes. Yeah, um, and try to figure out that way. Um, and so she definitely had no breast development and no pubic hair, which means the axis is deficient. Right, so it's an endocrine problem. Yeah, um, I wanted to see that she also had some sort of anatomy issue and she seems to have a blind vaginal pouch uh, which seems to be that she's got something wrong with um, anatomy as well and broken anatomy broken axis is kind of weird but then they kind of gave you the answer right so if you just ignored the whole beginning i was thinking about Kalman syndrome I, you know, I was thinking about um, Mullerian agenesis and testicular feminization, which I think is androgen insensitivity syndrome now. Yep. Um, I was kind of like, you know, going through all the, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be hard. But then they told you at the end that there's bilateral masses of the inguinal canal and adrenal glands are bilaterally hypertrophied, right? So the whole blah, 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 came down to there's adrenal hyperplasia and she has primary amenorrhea. The ambiguous genitalia is useful because, um, you know, the, the body's not sure which one she's got, testosterone and estrogen. And so uh, I would just say this is a cortisol pathway issue. The diagnosis is congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And I really don't know the answer at all because I haven't engaged this stuff in a long time. But I think the 17 hydroxy is in the urine. So it's going to be the 21 hydroxylase, which is correct. But I literally am just guessing. So I, even though I made the, I think I made the diagnosis correct on the vignette. I have no idea what the answer is, which happens sometimes. <laughs> so the answer is 17. So she has a deficiency of 17 alpha hydroxylase, which ah. was choice C. And the, and the reason is CAH from 17 alpha hydroxylase is characterized by an inability to produce the glucocorticoid and androgen hormones, right? Right. And a resultant increase in mineralocorticoids, which I think is, is probably what they're trying to get at with the elevated blood pressure likely due from uh sodium oh, yeah. retention and her potassium was a little low 3.1 so i got both the diagnosis and the answer wrong all right good job <laughs> that's a really hard question though and, and, it, and, it and is. I, it's almost like so the educational objective here is do you know the cortisol pathway and can you find the air that's broken i think if i started there I, I would if i had it in my head which i don't i would draw out the cortisol pathway at least rough it and see which of the deficiencies i actually didn't even latch on to the the hypertension and hypokalemia even though we literally just talked about it i missed the hyperaldo state and then got totally distracted by the amenorrhea and the bilateral adrenal glands. I knew it was congenital adrenal hyperplasia, but I think I totally botched the explanation of what's going on here endocrine-wise. And uh, that just goes to show you, sometimes you're going to get a question wrong. It's totally okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, okay. So we did, I think we got through five or six of these. Uh, you only got one wrong. If you get 80% <laughs> correct on, uh, on your step one exam, you're probably going to get a pretty good score. All right, so a 17-year-old boy comes to the endocrinology office for an evaluation of delayed puberty. He says that his sense of smell has been impaired since childhood. His vital signs show no abnormalities. Physical examination shows sparse facial, pubic, and axillary hair, rounded body contour, underdeveloped genitalia, and small testes. Sounds like a like a string of insults that would be slung at someone. Laboratory studies show uh, decreased LH and FSH serum levels. Serum testosterone is also decreased. 
Prolactin is 18 nanograms per milliliter and normal is less than 20. TSH is 2.0, which is normal. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, constitutional delay in puberty. B, hyperprolactinemia. C, Kalman syndrome. D, Kleinfelter syndrome. Or E, panhypopituitarism. All right. Um, they have the word amnos- uh, They didn't say anosmia, but uh, trouble with smell. I'm um, pretty much a Kalman syndrome already. Yeah. So like, I'm just going to mark you, that I, one. Yeah. Like, I can't think of another reason why that would show up on the boards like anosmia or difficult sense of smell like but i mean besides like i don't know they had like congestion or maybe like a random weird infarct in the 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 smell center of the brain but like Kalman syndrome right like anosmia difficulty smelling you really need to be thinking about Kalman syndrome but I think, I think it's a good point, though. Again, it's why you read the answer, the question and the answer choices. If there is anosmia and everything is about postnasal drip, sinusitis, pharyngitis, it's going to be about stuffy nose. Right. If it's delayed puberty, then you're right. You're de- delayed puberty and on- anosmia together. We're done. But I think it's a, it's actually a useful system to work through, right? Because this one really tests your knowledge of the anterior pituitary um, down to the testes um, to growth. And the whole point is, and I actually usually think about this in terms of a girl. So this was like um, functionally difficult for me because they talk about it in the way of puberty in, in girls. FSH and LH are supposed to stimulate uh, the testes to make testosterone. And um, I'll just say testosterone, that's easy for it's a guy. And yeah. that'll induce puberty. Um, so therefore, since LH and FSH are low, and then testosterone is low, it means that there's nothing driving the production of testosterone. Or hypogonadotropic hypogonadism right. is how we think about this in OB. <laughs> yeah, good. I mean, that, that's actually the, the right name. Yeah, that, I'm much more simple than you guys. You, know, you start starting to pull out Latin on me or something, like a dermatologist. <laughs> well, I mean, but it brings up the good a good point, because what is Kalman syndrome? It's hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. And maybe they don't say Kalman syndrome. And if you aren't able to dissect and and define what that term means, which I think you're about to do here, you might get it wrong. And that would suck if you knew the answer, but they just didn't give you, you know, the, the right word. Yeah. That's yeah that, maybe that's, that's they'd serum say unifixation, man. I knew it was multiple line mile <laughs> and I chose the wrong answer. Or I didn't like, know the damn word they were using. You know, they've got like hyper, uh, hyper gonadotropic hypogonism. And you're like, just sitting there. Is it hypo or hype? Is it hypo hypo or hyper hypo? Is it hypo hyper? You know, like I could see someone getting confused. So um, I, I think you were about to to describe or, or explain that. And that's actually the danger of just memorization, right? If yes. you had a table you, you put together for Kalman syndrome, you'd get it wrong. You wouldn't remember. You're stressed out on test day. You totally screw it up. But if you have the system, anterior pituitary makes FSH and LH to stimulate the testes to increase the value of testosterone. And testosterone is supposed to feed back on the anterior pituitary when testosterone is made to turn off FSH and LH. What you'd expect for puberty is an increase in LH and FSH and an increase in testosterone. But here you've got decreased LH and FSH. So low, hypo, gonadotropic, yep. gonadotropic stuff comes from the intuitary. And then low testosterone, gonads, hypogonads. Yep. And so what I expect to see is one of those to be elevated. But since they're not, it means that the primary issue is hypogonadism, but the issue comes from the anterior pituitary. The fact that the prolactin and the TSH is normal, it means the rest of the anterior pituitary is working. That makes a constitutional delay a really attractive answer, right? Because it sounds like the axis just hasn't started yet. Yeah. But 
unfortunately, at 17, that's no longer constitutional delay. If the age were different, like 13 or 14, um, that would be constitutional delay in my mind, but without the anosmia, of course. So right. the fact that he has anosmia and a functioning rest of his anterior pituitary pushes me to Coleman's, uh, but constitutional delay, make him 15 and have no anosmia, I think that that would count as constitutional. The panhypopit, normal prolactin and TSH, okay, that's that right there, and he has no reason why. Again, that's the Sheehan syndrome or some sort of infarct. Yeah. Um, hyperprolactinemia would be tough in a guy, um, amenorrhea, galactorrhea in women, um, bitemporal hemianopsia in a guy, but um, hyperprolactinemia does cause problems with the axis, so maybe that would actually be a reason why he might not be getting his growth spurt. And I missed the fifth option altogether because I heard anosmia, I stopped listening. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so C was the correct answer, Coleman syndrome. Then we had D, Kleinfelter's, E, pan hypopituitarism. Well, Kleinfelter's, right. So he'd be tall and lanky and have a weird um, genome. And I, I, I actually, XXY, I know they're tall and have some problem with their gonads, but hypogonadism. But if he hit puberty, the FSH and LH would be elevated, trying to tell the testes to turn on, but they wouldn't turn on. So if Kleinfelter's, the LH and FSH should be up not down. Yep, that is correct. See, I have to think about this too, like as I go, <laughs> I go through, but that's perfect. I mean, that's what you should do. You should be able to think through what these things mean. Panhypopituitarism was the last one. So why isn't everything's wrong with? Right, um, yeah, the, the normal the prolactin. Oh, it's, it is normal prolactin. That's why it's not hyperprolactinemia. Duh. Right. They actually have a normal level. And then panhypopit, uh, the TSH would be also abnormal. Panhypopit supposed to be everything's busted and it's only two things. So it's yep. just the axis, not everything else. So Kalman syndrome, uh, hypogonadotropic, hypogonadism, anosmia. It's a deficiency in the uh, GnRH secreted by the hypothalamus. Remember that for the boards. You can take that with you to test day. In your mind, you can't actually take anything that says that or a recording of that in with you on test day. Please don't, in fact, because leave it in your locker if you do. Yeah, yeah, leave it, leave it all. Um, all right, Dustin, thank you so much for your time and being subjected to that uh, pimping session. You did phenomenally. I, if you took step one today, you'd at least get a two seventy. At least I, I would maybe pass actually, but uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks for the, <laughs> the the kind words. I'm sure they're going to throw some mitochondrial DNA stuff at me, and I won't know what the hell's going on. But yeah, and this was actually kind of fun. It's just I was worried about it when I walked in. I I didn't prepare anything, and I was hoping that my test taking skills would get me through. And sure enough, for the most part, they actually work. So there you have it. That truly is a best of the ITB podcast, one of our most popular episodes. And for those of you who stuck around to the end, thank you. I want to tell you about a kind of a fun thing we're doing. So this is going to be a fake USMLE question campaign, and we're tying it to a contest. So from now until July 15th, head over to Twitter, go to my page, at Boards Insider. Look for the pinned tweet. What we're doing are fake USMLE questions. So here's an example. If Deadpool were in a USMLE question vignette, his most likely diagnosis would be A. Dissociative identity disorder B. Bipolar disease C. Antisocial personality disorder or D. Other. So here are the contest rules. You want to tag the character on Twitter. For instance, Deadpool is at Deadpool movie in the question vignette, and just set it up like if the character were in a USMLE question vignette, his most likely diagnosis would be 
and then make a Twitter poll, pick four answer choices, and tag Inside the Boards, as well as Gomer Blog. That's at Boards Insider and at Gomer Blog. And then finally, use the hashtag FakeUSMLE. The most creative FakeUSMLE question will get a one-year subscription to our All Audio QBank for free. We'll have fun while doing it. Maybe learn something. I don't know. It was just something that I thought would be a lot of fun. And you can also do it on other social media. I guess Reddit, Facebook, and Instagram, where on each platform we are at Inside the Boards. Or you can just send us an email to info at insidetheboards.com if you would like to contribute to the fake USMLE campaign. Just wanted to thank Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Live Outside off The Spark, their new album, about which Rao said, What I was trying to do with this album in marrying the personal and the political is to ensure that human vulnerability is laid bare and to not be afraid to speak about emotions. Plus, this album is a little lighter than what you heard previously with the song Anesthetist. At any rate, check out entershikari.com.